can do you think you can find a clip that we could use to use for the cold open, Brett, or do you want a cold open? I think you can find a clip. I mean, anytime that he said that's a really good question, and you've done your homework. Something like that would be. Fun. I think Ooh, that's what he we'll used for use Saul, that, though. You know, because that isn't self-serving at all. <laughs> I use that for Saul. Sorry. Yeah, We're um, just thrilled. But doesn't use that for for Saul. Uh, but he like We're going his... to use that right there, just so you know. <laughs> I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is Beyond the Mouse Podcast, the podcast for all things Disney, for NPR Illinois Community Voices, and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, joined by my co-host, Mr. Brett Rutherford. Hello there. And Miss Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. I'm surprised you didn't call Brett our thirst trap lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, you're looking great what? in that flannel you today. You are looking Look so you. good today, Well, it's Brett. winter here in the Midwest, even though when we're recording this the day before, it was 70 degrees. That's but, right. you know, and I'm happy for- Gotta love so. that Midwest weather. You know what else I love? <laughs> Little town. It's a quiet village. Every day. He serenades like the one us before. again. Such a yeah. treat. So here's the deal. We get a, an amazing opportunity today. We are going to talk to Don Hahn. And uh, you know Don Hahn's work. He is prolific throughout the Disney company. He currently has great specials and documentaries that you can see on Disney+. Plus. He's also have some shows on Amazon Prime. We have we're, we have questions galore that we're going to try to uh, get some answers to about his time at the Disney studios, uh, his time, of course, producing hits like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. He's also worked with so many amazing Disney legends uh, and trying to get those tales as well. I can't wait for this conversation. I've been like jittery all day thinking about this conversation because truly uh, my perception is that Don seems like one of us. He seems like a creative person but also I think he's a fan first. And so yeah, I, I yeah. think that he is really a, a Disney geek at heart and I can't wait to have this conversation. Vanessa, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I'm picking up on that as well. And, you know, just listening to some of his past interviews, he is a creative through and through, uh, you know, he's a drum major. He loves music. He's an artist. And then he's worked on all these films and hearing him speak, he sounds like such just the kindest and sweetest person. So I cannot wait to meet him. I'm really excited about this interview. You know, sometimes you just start talking and, and Brett gets this uh, a lot. I, I just start talking and talking and I don't really know what I'm saying. So I was not saying that we are creative people on his level. I was just saying he seems like a Disney geek uh, as well. Inspiration. Yes, he's an yeah, inspiration for all of us. I, I knew what you were saying, Craig. <laughs> okay, thank you. you. I'm just making sure that the listener, <clears throat> Brett, uh, knew exactly what I was talking about. Uh, Brett, your thoughts on the interview we have coming up? I... I'm very thrilled. I mean, I, you know, I like to do my research. I've seen so much of this and, but especially Waking Sleeping Beauty and kind of the inner workings of the studio at that time, because there was so much going on. And I have, I have questions that I'm dying to find answers for. And I, I can't wait to ask them. Oh, and yeah. And just be in his presence because he, he is a sage. He says wonderful, life-affirming things, and I can't wait to talk to him. I can't wait. I can't wait either, so it's time. Let's go and have our chat with Don Hahn. We are so honored today to welcome to the show Don Hahn. How are you today? 
I am really good, thank you. It's nice to meet you all and nice to be with you. Absolutely. And you know, usually we start right away with a question. And I will tell you, in prepping this interview, it was extremely hard to figure out which of the uh, 12,000 things you've done in your career would make the list for what we should ask about. But, uh, you know, usually I don't start with a statement, but I think uh, it's appropriate to do that today because uh, I've shared a lot on this show that my first theatrical experience and what really ignited my love, not just for Disney, but animation and movies was seeing Beauty and the Beast in theaters. And okay. so uh, it's incredible that uh, I get a chance to talk to you today just because that movie meant so much to me growing up and it still does to this day and getting to share that then with my young son, it, it's just a, a really great experience. So I just want to start by saying thank you. And I, you know, you don't necessarily even need to respond if you don't want to, but just <laughs> thank you for that You're experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had a lot of help. We had a great team of people that pull it together. And it's funny, we just had lunch the other day because it's the 30th anniversary of Beauty and the Beast. And so I um, called up all the department heads and I said, let's celebrate. And we all went out to the Tam O'Shanter in, uh, in Los oh, Angeles, which is an old Walt Disney hangout and um, had a lot of fish and chips and uh, reminisced. So uh, it was a great time. It was a really great time. And we were fortunate to be part of it. Absolutely. And of course, the first animated feature to be nominated for Best Picture as well. So uh, history breaking, uh, even for the company as well. I know it was. I think I have, I, I even have awards here. Um, let's see. This yeah. is, here's, here's the Gold Globe from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> oh, nice. Wow. That here. Yeah, let me show so, you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a treat because the animation was always seen to be kind of the, oh, the kids medium that would uh, amuse the kids while you were doing something else. And that all changed. Uh, I mean, it, it certainly changed in Walt Disney's time. Movies like Snow White and Pinocchio were not seen as kids' movies at all. And, um, and then again, fortunately, in our time, uh, it, it, people were reminded how much they loved animation and how much it could be a medium that reached a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. Brett, uh, you have our official first question. Well, well, again, it is such an uh, honor and a delight to meet you. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Brett. for joining us. So, but uh, you've, you might've mentioned this, you know, from time to time, but we need to know, how did you come to work at Disney and what's your origin story? <laughs> Well, you were born in Chicago, if we want to go back to that. but uh, I wish I had a certainly... tremendously interesting origin story, but I was born in Chicago, yes. And, so we claim uh, you. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and love it there still. My daughter went to school at Art Institute there, and uh, mm -hmm. so uh, I love it as kind of a second hometown. When I was young, though, my dad moved out to California. He was a Lutheran pastor and uh, took a church out in Los Angeles, and so I pretty much grew up in Southern California in the 60s and the 70s and beyond. And... Um, and I'm glad I did, because that was a place of possibilities. You know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing like a truck outside on the big boulevard, and you'd open the curtains at four in the morning, and there'd be a piece of the Saturn V rocket going by, or, <laughs> oh, um, wow. you know, uh, going to Disneyland back then was always a treat. So, um, uh, you know, I was fortunate about that. And I, I was a musician. I studied music in college. I was a percussionist, uh, probably headed towards either teaching or playing um percussion behind a symphony orchestra somewhere but i also loved disney from a really young age and um got a got a job uh at the studio working downstairs actually in the basement in the morgue which is where all the old animation was stored and um over the months and years kind of worked up and started working um in different offices i worked with woolly rather who was one of the great producers and directors of uh kind of the 60s and 70s 
And it was funny because when I was a kid, I grew up with Woolies movies. I, I might love Jungle Book and I loved 101 Dalmatians. And then to be in the room working with him was um, crazy. Um, and then I tried animation for a while. I tried a lot of different things and, and eventually kind of um, migrated into producing totally by accident. I never really set out to be a producer. Um, I'm a little bit of an attention deficit person. So I, instead of being at a drawing board for 40 hours a week, the idea of moving around and working with a lot of people was good for me. And um, I was a music major and an art minor. I'm a painter. And so to be able to work in music and art and all that stuff was good. And the truth is Disney was my university. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with people who had worked with Walt Disney, Joe Grant and Ken Anderson and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston and Wooly and all these men and women who invented animation. And um, so I learned a lot. I learned a lot there and was fortunate to be there at the right time. Wow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Vanessa, you had a, a almost a follow-up to the I musical. I do, yes. Well, first of all, can I just say, you pulled that Golden Globe out of that closet real quick. So if there's anything else you want to pull out of there, you just <laughs> I, go I, ahead. I do. While you're asking your question, I'll be pulling random things out of my closet here. Wow, thank I you. I love it. Perfect. That's great. <laughs> so while you're uh, looking around, this is great. This is like Mary Poppins just pulling it out of the back. Oh, look at that. We've got a, a Simba sculpture there. Very cool. <laughs> um, but it Anyway, we'll get uh, back to the question here. So you talked about studying music and you were a drum major. Oh, wait, I have to stop. Mrs. Potts. Oh, that's that's a very oh, nice that's, Mrs. Potts. That's that incredible. is so great. These are the maquettes. Oh. I'm so sorry to take away from your question. No, These are the maquettes from the movie, though, that Ruben Procopio sculpted. Oh. And they're the original oh. maquettes So you didn't from, get that um, at the Disney store? <laughs> <laughs> These for the incredible. animators to use so that the animators could see what the characters looked like in volume. Yes. And um, anyway, I'll stop. Please go ahead with your no, question. Oh, okay. oh well, so no, great. You, you can do whatever you'd no, like. Okay. But I, I will ask you because, um, you know, we love music here. And you were, since you were a drum major, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, looking at the films you've worked on, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Hunchback, all those films have incredibly rich musical scores. And how did your love of music play a part in your career and, and working with those films? I mean, did you know you were amidst greatness? Uh, I, um, you know, while you're working on films like that, I, nobody ever says, hey, hey, everybody, we're in the middle of a renaissance. Isn't it great? <laughs> um, we were just working hard to try to show that we could do some good work. And um, and have a you know have our generation be able to create some good movies. Um, I was never intimidated by musicals. I because I had a vocabulary for dealing with it, and um, I don't know if other producers or directors felt intimidated by it. But I just never working with Alan Menken or Hans Zimmer or whoever it was. I always felt like, well, I I know this world and I know how to talk to them, and um, you know they don't need a lot of talking to. To be honest, they're very uh, self sufficient. But um, that's why I suppose it was never um, a problem. It was comfortable for me because I grew up, my mom was a musician uh, in, in university. You're just around practice rooms and, and orchestras and big bands and drum and bugle corps and all that stuff. And you're um, comfortable with it. And, and so I think that's why I gravitated towards making a lot of musicals. And I have and, and still love it because it's, when it works, it's an amazing way to tell a story because music kind of transcends the spoken word. And when a character is so deeply involved emotionally in a story that they can't do anything but sing, um, that's a very special thing. It's a very American thing. It's a very 
unique kind of storytelling device. And, uh, and I love that. And so to be able to do those movies was a treat for me. Yeah, you, definitely. I love that. In, in films like Beauty and the Beast or, or Little Mermaid, bringing in those musical sequences, that's what really helped bring in that audience as well and really start that Disney renaissance that we all know and love. And so I have a question. You, have, you were sort of working in Disney animation at the time that you were bridging that uh, transition from the night old men style of management into that Disney Renaissance style. So I wanted to uh, get a, a thought of how the creative style did change when people like Jeffrey Katzenberg or Peter Schneider came in. What was that change like? What was the era like in that building? When I started at the studio, it was 1976 and I was 20 years old and it was, um, um good but it had uh slowed down a little bit most people were nearing their retirement age the focus was on theme parks because that's where a lot of the income was coming from ron miller who ran the studio at the time was turning a corner and trying to create more interesting movies especially in live action with movies like splash the ron howard film and um but animation was still lagging behind um Black Cauldron was uh, something I worked on for a long, long time. Really good people, full of good work, but it never resonated really with the audience. And uh, for whatever reason, it was not a good film. Um, but then we we began turning a corner with Fox and the Hound was a little bit better. Um, and I think it was, for me anyway, Great Mouse Detective uh, started to show a lot more um, buoyancy to the films and the possibilities mm -hmm. of animation. After Mouse Detective, like literally after that film was done, I went to London and worked on Roger Rabbit. And for me, the combination of Roger Rabbit and then the next year, Little Mermaid came out. Those two especially reminded the world that they just loved animation. They loved Chuck Jones. They loved Disney. They loved, you know, all those characters. And, um, and then to follow that up with Little Mermaid, which was uh, obviously Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, uh, John Musker, Ron Clements, uh, was a revelation and it was something saying this is animation is not only good but it's also really entertaining and it can be a date movie you know you can go to Aladdin with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and have a great evening out and that was never the case you wouldn't be caught dead at a Disney animated movie a few years earlier so that that time at the end of the 80s uh, was a real corner that was being turned creatively a lot of that has to do with uh, Roy Disney Michael Eisner Jeffrey Katzenberg Peter Schneider they were great executives and we had great artists at the time who had been at the studio for about 10 years and it takes that long in the oven to start to cook up really interesting talent. So um, if you look at Beauty and the Beast and Mermaid, Glenn Keane was on it, Mark Henn was on it, James Baxter was on it, Andreas Deja was on it. It was like the, the um, A-team, the Chicago Bulls of animation. And, um, and that happened for a few years and and then that evaporated it was you know it was like sports in a way um so we were really the beneficiaries of the coming of age of a group of artists the coming of age of a group of executives that were hungry to show that disney had tremendous potential a guy like roy disney who was kind of our godfather protector uh all of those things were really a perfect storm that kind of let us do what we did well, well, since we're talking about the 80s, and uh, any thoughts about Michael Eisner and his time at Disney? I mean, does Michael, Frank Wells, and the management team from their time get the recognition they deserve? Or is it kind of like the last years of the Eisner era cloud our views to the level of their contributions to the Walt Disney Company? 
That's a really good question, and you've done your homework. Um, <laughs> you just it, possibly the, the last few years <laughs> of Michael's um, time there, for listeners who may not know, was clouded a little bit by uh, competitiveness, by, um, oh, he was feuding a bit with Roy Disney. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg famously left the studio in 94, um, so it was bumpy. The first 10 years he was there, 84 to 94, was uh, miraculous. And I think it was really a, a, a Waking Sleeping Beauty kind of case where there were tremendous assets that weren't being used. Um, home video came into being. Uh, theme parks expanded into uh, Paris and, and you know places that they hadn't been before. Um, and so that group of executives was pretty brilliant at capitalizing on all that. As that group of executives kind of um, <laughs> fell apart a little bit, um, it became less dynamic and less of a explosion of business and art. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, generally, I think people, I, I, I can tell you what I think, I, and that is that Eisner generally was a, a pretty dynamic leader, and he and Frank Wells together were a great team. Mm -hmm. uh, Frank was very much the foundation, the ballast to it. Uh, Michael was surprisingly creative. I mean, he, he really had a you know, was very literate, very um, uh, you know well read in terms of uh, drama and, and um, movies and that kind of thing. Uh, Katzenberg was tireless, so there's a great mix of people there that really made that ten years take off. Um, and then, the, like most things in life, you get ten years, and that's it. You know, mm -hmm. if you're a politician, if you're a sports hero, you get ten years, and that was very much the case then. Yeah, well, I I love Waking Sleeping Beauty, and and again this time when I was watching it because I watch it I've watched it a number of times. Um, when I was watching it this time around, it seems when animation moved off the Disney lot, it made me think a lot of the current situation where Disney Imagineering is moving from its home in Glendale and moving to Orlando. It yeah. sort of seemed like um, a com well, okay, I'll say it a complete betrayal of the creative culture. Not unlike animation's move or banishment. Do you have any yeah. thoughts of that? Well, I know. I'll, I'll give you my opinion, which is not the opinion of the Walt Disney Company necessarily. Um, but moving off a lot was the best thing that could have happened to us. It put a, a healthy fear of God into us. Although Michael said they never thought of closing down animation. Um, and who knows? But um, it was enough to wake us up to say, you know, we're no longer able to cruise on the reputation of a previous generation of people that worked with Walt. And to be honest, the studio had gotten kind of sleepy, kind of country clubbish. But I, I think a lot of it was um, enough of a wake up call to say, you know, we have to make sure to stick to our knitting and do a good job. The plus for us is we moved right across the street from Imagineering. So we moved on Flower Street, which is where Imagineering was for many years. And uh, so you'd have lunch and you'd, you'd go across the street and have a burger with uh, Claude Coates. Uh, you know, you'd see these people they had a great library across the street. So it was very much um, while you were working in trailers and warehouses, feeling oppressed, you had inspiration across the street. I would hope for Imagineering moving from uh, Glendale to Florida, and I know absolutely nothing about the details of that. I would hope they would find that same kind of um, spirit because it can be really demoralizing. And we were demoralized, you know, th those many years ago. It's like, what's going on? There goes the industry. Animation will never exist again. But it was just exactly the opposite. It was a boom time. And so I, I certainly wish that upon the Imagineers. And I know how difficult it is for that kind of uh, cultural change, but it can be 
a very dynamic time. It can be like throwing a match into a gas tank and just wake everybody up to be able to look at new possibilities. And I certainly wish that on the Imagineers. Well, that's actually, you know, watching uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty gave me that that idea. I'm like going, maybe, you know, I when you watch uh, other films of that time that make comments about the studio and, oh, you know, how's this ever going to happen? You know, it, it, it was a change, a dramatic change, but things turned out for the best. So I'm really hoping that for Imagineering as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all do. And, and there's no doubt that it's difficult, but they have some great people and uh, and they will find um, you know, great people to collaborate with in Florida. I mean, gosh, Walt Disney World has a tremendous amount of talent down there. So um, time will tell, but I, you know, they have every opportunity to make it a um, beneficial experience. Well, good. Thank you. Absolutely. Vanessa, you had our next question. Well, you do such a fantastic job of taking us behind the scenes in Waking Sleeping Beauty. And I was wondering if you might take us behind the scenes during the time of the Pixar merger, uh, when I believe you were the uh, interim head of animation. So you would know a lot about that time. So can you kind of give us a glimpse into the atmosphere? Um, wow, great question. These are questions no one asks me. So you guys are really good. Um, oh. the, <laughs> seriously. Um, Pixar obviously was uh, the golden boy or golden girl of animation at the time, and rightly so. They were making great movies. Um, and so to to buy Pixar and have them merge culturally with our company in, in uh, Disney Animation in Burbank um, was exciting, uh, intimidating. Um, they are incredibly smart people, particularly people like Ed Catmull, who is you know, a PhD in computer science, but also a really smart uh, people person. Um, so I welcomed it. I knew Ed and John really well and, and a lot of the players at Pixar. And I think part of the reason um, that they chose me as an interim head because I had no political agenda. I didn't want to be an executive. I didn't want to run animation. Um, I see myself uh, as more of an artist or a musician and a storyteller. And I, I felt like there was no need to be an executive to run anything. So I was harmless. And to be able to take uh, and, and run that company during the merger, they needed someone that was harmless that could do whatever needed to be done. And so that's what I did for that year was uh, welcome John and Ed in, get them settled, get them offices, get them housing, all that stuff, and then get them acclimated to what needed to be done. And a lot of it was very baseline. It was like, you know, hey, we don't want to have, we don't have Wi-Fi in the building and we need to change our computer systems to be more sympathetic to Pixar's. Um, and vice versa. I think there were things that Disney Animation helped out with at Pixar. Pixar grows out of Disney Animation, and there was a lot of cross-communication between the two. So it took a few years, and eventually the culture of Disney Animation changed uh, when John and Ed were down there every week. I mean, those guys worked really hard to get the Disney Animation department uh, rejuvenated uh, in that time from 2006 on uh, and did a great job. And then I stepped aside and felt like for me personally, I felt like I didn't want to make other animated movies. It felt a little like Groundhog Day, like, oh, I've done this before. Uh, I wanted some new challenges. And so I, I, you know, just said, you know, I'm going to migrate over and make some nature movies. I'm going to make some live action movies and um, and have a new chapter to my life and, and do that. I, I, you know, I, I could have stayed in animation forever and I love animation, but it was a nice opportunity to tr change up things and learn some new crafts. 
And as an audience, we are the beneficiaries of that because the nature films are just Disney nature. And I know uh, Walt's connection to Disney nature and how much he valued those films when he was producing them. Um, it, it just everything about those are just so beautiful to see the, the natural beauty in addition to the imaginary uh, beauty that Disney is so well known for. So it's just great that you had uh, sort of an additional career out of making those as well. Yeah, I was fortunate because it's the people that go out in the field and shoot those movies are one of a kind. And um, on, on a lot of the movies I made, those people were out of uh, Bristol, England. They had worked for BBC Nature for a long time. Mark Linfield, Alistair Fothergill, those guys. So um, they're going to deliver you great film. And, and my only role really was to sit in editing and say, OK, we have... 90 hours of chimpanzees, you know, sleeping and throwing poop and that kind of thing. <laughs> How do we make a story out of that? And, um, and that's what I love to do. So we had great collaboration with the guys in Bristol and, and turned those into stories. They're not documentaries in terms of a nature film completely because we anthropomorphize the chimpanzees or fish or whatever it is to tell stories that are very uh, human, but that's okay. There's thousands of years of precedent for that. Yeah, one of our friends and listeners, Ian, uh, loves the Disney Nature series, so I know he's geeking out uh, hearing you answer all those questions. <laughs> great, great, great. So, um, Brett, you had a question about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Well, sure. You know, in an interview with Speech Bubble, you mentioned your work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and your time in London, which you just mentioned, and your work and your time working with Richard Williams. And you'd mentioned that he was a genius in that interview, and you said that you don't use that word lightly. Well. If Don Hahn says someone is a genius, I need to find out more about him. So thank you for mentioning him. I was actually familiar with some of his work, but not really him. And so I'm having a great time finding out more about his work. So, but, so thank you for that. But can you also tell us about your experience on Roger Rabbit? I mean, I, from what I understand, principal filming was complete and then it went to London so animation could finish it. I mean, no pressure, right? <laughs> yeah, it had a long history before Bob Zemeckis got involved in it. Uh, it was around the studio for a while. And when um, Eisner and Katzenberg and Wells came into the studio, it's one of the properties they really looked at and said, oh, there's something here. And I think this is a Bob Zemeckis film. And Bob Zemeckis had just finished Back to the Future. And, uh, and Bob loved the idea of Roger Rabbit. So we did, I was one of the first people on it. We did a lot of storyboarding, a lot of preparation at uh, Stevens Place Amblin, which is on the Universal lot. We put trailers behind Amblin and storyboarded the Toontown sequence and a lot of the opening cartoon and all that to try to prepare it. Uh, the filming was done, we did two weeks in Los Angeles to get all the exteriors, uh, the Hyperion Bridge and um, Hope Street down in Los Angeles was remodeled as a 1940s idyllic place. That's where the... Um, you know, the Cloverleaf Industries was and that kind of thing. And then we moved the whole company to London to finish the rest of it. So the rest of it was done at Elstree Studios, which is the famous studios where Star Wars was filmed, um, the first Star Wars. And, um, and, and that's when Dick and I got involved. I, I would get up in the morning and a driver would take me to Dick's house, uh, Richard Williams' house. And I would go in and knock on the door and wake him up and make him coffee. And then we would drive at a long drive, 45 minutes out to Elstree, and they were just about ready to start the first shot by that time. And um, and Dick was there to be the the eyes and ears of animation. So Bob would say, well, how, you know, how do you see the rabbit in this particular scene? 
And Dick would say, well, why don't we have him jump up and down on the bed? And so they would rig the bed to have the cushion jump up and down. And it was really like filming an Invisible Man movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we would reverse engineer the animation into that. So if a character put his hand on a chair and removed it, you would leave a, uh, an imprint where the dust was taken away. And then we would just put that animated hand on top of it. Uh, so it was a lot of experimentation and a lot of trying to figure out new things that hadn't been done before. Um, and tunes living in a real world meant uh, a, a tune had to carry a real gun or a tune had to spit real water. All those things were a challenge. So we filmed for several months in London and then I stayed in London and we animated the greater part of the movie there in beautiful Camden Town. If you've ever been to London and shopped at the Camden Market, uh, just a few blocks away is where our studio was. Uh, the movie got so ambitious, we had to open a, a, um, a, a leg of the studio, a branch of it in uh, Los Angeles in Glendale. Uh, directed by Dale Bear, who was amazing. So we had a great unit in Los Angeles, great unit in London. Uh, and it was tough because we would throw, it was a very young group of people. Many had never worked on a feature before. And we would say, okay, you're going to animate uh, Bugs Bunny today. And you're going to man- animate Foghorn Leghorn. And here's Jessica, who was like no other character ever done before. And so it was a lot of people rising to the occasion of that new idea and that new film. And that's what made it challenging, but made it work. Sir, well, didn't we when we we talked with Brenda Chapman, she she had worked on that and she was talking about that she was animating the shadows of the weasels, you know. So then when you watch, so when you watch that, I'm like, going, well, we've talked to who did that, and oh my gosh, <laughs> like going, yeah, that's just amazing. So well, it was groundbreaking and it was you know a big favorite. We recently just watched. Well, actually, that was my birthday movie here Aww, on, the, happy birthday. on the mouse. It was well, it was Noir Vember with uh, the classics. Yes. You know, so we kind of we we did this a combination film, but yeah, yeah, we loved it very much. So it was a perfect film for that. And you know uh, what I love about your career is that it seems like you are always moving forward, and you have now presented a lot of pieces for us that are now on Disney Plus. And we're going to ask about the adventures through the Walt Disney Archives in just a bit. But before we do, I wanted to ask about this beautiful documentary that you uh, made about your friend Howard Ashman. When you brought Howard uh, to Disney Plus, it was something that I found so enlightening as someone who was a child uh, during that time. And, And I knew the names Howard Ashman, and of course, you know, Alan Menken, but I didn't know a lot about Howard Ashman until your film. And uh, we've had the privilege to talk to Jody Benson and to Alan Menken, and both of them really credit Howard with so much that we know and love from Disney and his creative spirit. And you captured that so well in that documentary. And so I just wanted to uh, let you maybe give us some of your thoughts on your friend Howard. Well, I would agree with Alan and Jody that Howard was a big part of that um, renaissance. It was a big part of the return of the musical he taught us. I mean, he came in and there's clips of that in the movie. Uh, he came in and sat down and said, okay, this is, this is a musical. A traditional Broadway musical does this. There's, there's 10 songs and the third song does this. The second song does this. And if you're lucky, you get a villain song. And he just laid it out like we were in university. And I think he was tremendously well-educated in, uh, in musical theater, um, Indiana university. Uh, you know, he was studying to become a director he was a writer. He was a dramatist far more than just a lyricist. So his mastery of telling stories in musicals was something that we benefits us still today uh, because a lot of people like Lin-Manuel and people that are writing musicals today were students of, his, of Howard's work back in that era. So um, 
yeah, Howard really was our, our, uh, our teacher. He was one of the funniest people I ever met. He was one of the, um, didn't suffer fools very well, uh, but not in an evil way, uh, just in a, you know, he, he, oh, those are the best people to be around. So. <laughs> yeah. And he knew what he wanted, you know, and he was so, for example, we would talk about Beauty and the Beast and he said, well, uh, you know, a traditional fairy tale or traditional movie, when you consummate a love relationship, if it's a family movie, you can't, you know, have a date and they go have sex afterwards. You have a date and they dance afterwards and dancing is the consummation of that relationship. And he talked about the King and I. And so the Beauty and the Beast dance is very much like the King and I, or, Gaston's very much uh, based on a character named Milos Gloriosus from Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And Milos Gloriosus is this braggadocious Roman soldier who is very much like Gaston because Gaston's based on him. But he would say things like that and we'd go, oh yes, Milos Gloriosus. And we'd have to go home at night and look up who the hell that was. <laughs> oh my so he, he was just very, um, his knowledge and ability to call up references uh, in a useful way was was really good. And then, of course, he delivered. He delivered the goods in terms of his uh, his lyrics and his performances, his demo tapes, which many of you have heard, and I put as many of them in the Howard Ashman uh, documentary as I could, uh, were blueprints. And if you talk to Jody or Richard White, who did guest on, or really anybody in that era who was an actor, Angela Lansbury included, they used Howard's performances as a roadmap to what he wanted and how to perform that. He was all about acting first and singing second. You know, he didn't care if a person had a particularly amazing operatic voice. It was all about the performance and the acting and the storytelling. Then if you can sing, great. Um, so anyway, I can't say enough about him. And I felt really you know, obligated may not be the right word, but I felt it was important to make a film about him. And I also felt for whatever reason, if I didn't do it, it may not get done only because I knew him and I knew all the players. So I could go to Katzenberg or Peter Schneider or Jody or Alan and, and get their point of view, Howard's sister, Howard's uh, mate, Billy. And I also felt like this is a story about a gay Jewish man from Baltimore, which is a very um, untypical Disney movie. Not for any reason, but it's just not a, what first thing that springs to mind when you think of a Disney movie. And I have to say, Bob Iger was the one that said, you know, this would be perfect for our streaming service because I showed it to him one weekend and he said, this is great. This is the kind of thing we need on our streaming service. And um, so I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that it's about a, um, a gay man during the AIDS crisis, one of the toughest times in in our history as a country, not unlike what we're going through now. And uh and I didn't want to hide any of those facts. You know, it's Howard doesn't want to be defined by AIDS. He didn't want to be defined by being gay. He wanted to be defined by his talents and his, his, you know, treasure, his gift of writing songs. So that was first and foremost when I made the movie. But the fact that there were echoes of that other part of his life was something that um, I certainly wanted to include and was not something to, to, uh, to hide at all. I'm sorry to keep you on this subject, but, you know, you've captured the tremendous loss, the creative loss and the grief that was caused by the AIDS epidemic by sharing um, Ashman's stories, as well as the stories you shared of the Eastern European children um, during the pediatric um, right. AIDS epidemic in, in Europe in your film Handheld. And I just 
wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe tell us, um, you know, why those stories, why they were important to highlight in those films. And, and if there's anything that you'd like audiences to take away or know about that time in history. Wow. That, what a great question. Thank you for asking that because I, um, handheld the movie was about a photographer who was a Disney photographer. He, he photographed the burn bomb travel guide every year for years, Mike Carroll. And he stumbled across the fall of the Iron Curtain and Ceausescu and the Romanian country and the AIDS epidemic over there. I felt like that was a tragedy, just as Howard's loss was a tragedy. And I felt like it was an untold story. And um, I also, there was a time in my career, just to get into the weeds a little bit, where I felt like I, the world didn't need another animated film from Don. And I could use my skill set to tell some stories about uh, people whose stories have not been told. And uh, I felt that strongly. And I, I was lucky enough to not need the money or anything else. And so I started making documentaries now about now 10 or 12 years ago about exactly that, about social issues I care about, about my artistic heroes like Howard or Tyrus Wong or uh, those kinds of people. And, um, and to say, here's a story that's untold. Mike Carroll, this photographer for the Boston Globe and People magazine, not Romanian, he's Irish Catholic from Boston, ends up helping Romanian children now for almost 30 years just because he saw a need. Well, what a great story to tell. I, I couldn't do that, but I can make a movie about him. You know, I can tell his story. And now he's raised millions of dollars, not because of me, but just because of his energies. And uh, Romanian children's relief is a huge deal. Um, so I love stories like that. I love stories about the uh, the underdog, the unexpected way that life can change in a heartbeat. Uh, Mike Carroll got a call in the middle of the night that said, can you be on a plane the next morning to go to Romania? He happened to say yes, and it changed his whole life and the life of millions of orphans and people in Romania. That's a great story. It's just incredible. Brett, uh, you had our next question. Well, adventures through Walt Disney archives. I mean, normally I'm watching so much of Disney Plus programs at 2 a.m., like when they're released here in the Midwest. And, and you know, it started with Imagine Imagineering Story when Disney Plus premiered and then all of the Marvel. And then Adventure Through Walt Disney Archives came out right as I was at Destination D23. And I needed to sleep, so I missed it. But I did watch it, and I loved it. And it's like, an, you know, an envy for all of us to... I mean, I'm, I'm going to get my white gloves, so I'm always... So if I ever get the phone call, it's time to go to the archives I, I'm already but can you tell us it was such a fun project can you tell us about that and oh boy you, so you know it started with it started with uh Becky Klein who's our beloved head of the archives at Disney and uh just in passing one day we were up in Walt Disney's office that she had just remodeled and and restored back to the original which is unbelievable she said someday I'd like to do a little movie about this and and uh and do a movie that celebrates Dave Smith who used to be uh, in charge of the archives and the 50th anniversary and I said oh that's a great deal that's a great idea. And uh, over time, we kept talking about it. And she said, well, maybe you would host it. And I said, well, I, I'm not a host, but I would host it if I could go visit all of you and have you talk about what you do for a living. Because they're really interesting people that talk about untold stories. And, um, and that's the genesis of it. Um, John Glime, the director, had a great idea to kind of tie it into The Reluctant Dragon, which is a movie that most people have not seen, but it's about a character named Robert Benchley, who was a well-known critic uh, who came to the studio and was trying to find Walt Disney's office the whole time. Well, so that was the plot of Mm -hmm. the Adventures Through the Archives. And over a period of days, we filmed that uh, new 
show for uh, Disney Plus. And we got to go to the coolest places and um, they opened the doors for me. And we, I, I, I can't divulge where, but we went to warehouses in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and you open the doors and there's the flubber truck next to the Mary Poppins carousel horses next to God knows what. And um, I, I'm a Disney geek. I proudly say that, you know, I, I, I have no problem with that at all. I, uh, and so to go in and see those things, to go into a room and see Mary Poppins handbag, to go into a room and see costumes and wardrobes, go to Disneyland um, with Becky and just do all those things and then be able to interrogate all the uh, people that work in the archives and say, mm-hmm. what are you doing again? What's in those boxes over there? You mean to tell me Peter Ellenshaw painted all those things? Um, I, I was genuinely like excited and aghast at a lot of the stuff I saw. And we filmed it. And that's the core of what that story is. And I I hope more than anything, it's a tribute to the people more than any other company in Hollywood, possibly any other company, that pay attention to the history of the culture of the Walt Disney Company, because it's important. It's not just a fan thing. It's important because it can drive the future of that company. And we're not a museum. You know, it's not a dusty thing where you look to the past to drive the future. I mean, that's not at all what it's for but it's to talk about what's important about walt disney it's the spirit of innovation the spirit of fearlessness um the spirit of uh, failure and reinvention and iteration and all those things and uh and that comes out when you look at all the things that he went through uh he was persistent and fearless and persistent again and um and that's why it was such a joy to make that film with becky and all her people well, you were a great host. You were a great host, and your enthusiasm was evident. And it just, uh, and so it was great. I was hoping it was a series. When I saw it was a one-off, I'm like going, no. But you know, maybe I know be I, another I, part. So. I told her that. I said, well, let's let's keep going, and next we can go up to um, Lucasfilm and go through their warehouses, Ooh, and then we'll like wander down somewhere else and go through their warehouse. Mm-hmm. So uh, who knows? I. Um, <laughs> I, I just love doing that. Certainly. Love doing that so, stuff. I love the premise too of you kind of trying to get to Walt's office, couldn't get there. It added a nice story touch to it as well. Yeah. Uh, in addition to seeing all this, it was just so well done. So, uh, congrats on that uh, being probably one of your latest projects to be released to us as True. well. But um, Vanessa, you have our next question. Yes. So you have had the opportunity to get to know the Disney family in the documentary film Christmas with Walt Disney. And, you know, it's such a strange thing to have your father and and really even your last name known by children and families all over the world. And yet there's something so familiar about celebrating the holidays at home. So what insight did you find about being a Disney family member as you were uh, wrapping up the film? Wow. Um, I was lucky enough to know Ron Miller because I worked for him for a while when he was at the company. And then I met Diane later when they opened the Walt Disney Family Museum. She asked me to be part of their advisory board. Uh, So I was really honored because it was people like Pete Doctor and uh, great historians like uh, Paula Sigmund Lowry and uh, Jeff Curdy. So I sat in on some of those meetings. um, And when they wanted a Christmas film early on, Diane was like, well, let's get Julie Andrews. We'll have her do it. And I said, why? Why don't it's Christmas with Walt? Why don't you narrate it? No, 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 I can't narrate it. And eventually she said, okay. And then I I finally roped Ron Miller in, who's very, not shy, but just introverted. And he was great. 
um, I wish you could hear their whole session, but we went to ILM, which is in the Presidio, right by the Walt Disney Family Museum. They had a small recording booth where they record stormtroopers and that kind of thing. Um, we went in there with Diane and Ron and a bottle of wine, and we sat down, and I showed home movies to Diane. I said, I'm just going to show you home movies and talk about them, and she did. It was the sweetest thing. It was like sitting with anybody and just saying, oh, oh, that's where we used to go shopping on Wilshire Boulevard, and and we recorded that, and that became the narration. And uh, they're, you know, they're real people. The thing about the Disney family and the Millers uh, is they're very Midwestern. They're very real people. They're very unassuming, um, humble to a degree, although they can get things done. If you look at the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, that's a good example. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a real pleasure. I, I always felt honored and still do. I, I'm still on their advisory board at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And um, and for the same reasons that I love the archives, I take that seriously because I think it's a piece of history, a piece of film history, a piece of American history that's important to preserve, and a piece of cultural history for the Walt Disney Company that I think is important to preserve. Absolutely. In addition to, so we've, I, I told you, you have about 12,000 projects, I think that we could probably talk <laughs> about. Uh, but in addition to all of this, you've also published a, a few books as well. Uh, things like Dancing Corn Dogs in the Night and Brainstorm, Unleashing Your Creative Self. And we don't want to give too much away about those uh, books because we want to encourage our listeners to get them and pick them up. But you talk so much about the human creative spirit, and you've talked about that a bit today as well. And I think it's something that people take for granted. So how do we cultivate and what's important to know about that human creative spirit? Wow, it's a big topic. Um, But the the kind of short version of it is so often we get that kind of uh, fun creative side of us uh, beaten out of us at a young age. Um, If you asked a room of adults, uh, well, who here can draw? Who here can sing? Everybody said, I can't draw a straight line. But you could when you were four years old. You know, when you were four years old, you could sing and draw and play in the mud all day long. So what happens to that? And I think, yes, we grow up. Yes, responsibilities and and rightly so enter our lives. Um, But there's a kid very much alive in all of us, which is a Walt Disney quote. And uh, he loved to make movies for the kid in all of us. And that's the part of life that I think we often don't cultivate and don't give ourselves or our children permission to cultivate. Um, I think that's changing. I think you see companies spending more time with activities that are more playful, giving their employees more time off to study and enrich themselves, um, letting their employees work from home a little bit more, doing things that that foster a, a complete human being, not just a robot. Um, so, so much, so much of it for me is, is keeping that child alive, uh, your own child alive in your life and not apologizing for it, you know, and to be able to say, you know, I need some, uh, mental time off. I'm going to go drive to the mountains and stare at a tree is, is important creative work because you'll come back refreshed. You'll come back with a new point of view. You'll come back with your subconscious, having dealt with a lot of creative problems that you're struggling with. And those are all the things that, um, we need to give ourselves a little more permission to do. So that's what excites me because I feel like those are the kinds of things that um, when I talk to groups of people, people respond to, you know, to giving, giving yourself permission to let your hair down a little bit more than we're, we're normally allowed to. Well, and you, uh, I love Inside Out. It's one of my favorite films. And uh, Pete Docter in kind of 
researching that film and then checking out the behind the scenes, he mentions so many of his story ideas come from those walks that he uh, takes like a notepad with him along on his walks. And then he will come up with these ideas as he goes along. So again, unleashing that creative self is just uh, important to take those that time away yeah. at some point too. It was, it was, Steve Jobs was a walker. He, if you went to have a meeting with Steve, he would say, let's walk. And wherever you were, you just go out on the sidewalk or whatever and walk and talk. And that's an old, is it Aristotle or whatever? It's an old idea that um, the, the mobility of that walk breeds the mobility of ideas. And, um, and so something as simple as that is really um, important to remember that it's okay. It's okay to get up from your desk. It's okay to drive around for a while and, um, and give yourself a, a mental break because that's, again, it's important work you're doing while you're walking around. That's right. Brett, you had a follow-up, I think. Well, I think, well, in my research, I came across the YouTube video that was a commencement speech that you kind of gave to the universe, which mm -hmm. had amazing insights. And I can't even begin to tell you how awesome that was. So oh, I don't you. know, it's just a little bit of a, I don't know. Have you, have you, do you have part two of that, you know, in a small <laughs> of time? Maybe. You know? <laughs> it was the, um, Kirsten Komorowski, who runs the Walt Disney Family Museums, asked, gosh, can you do a commencement speech? Because, um, you know, just for everybody out there, they can't get to a commencement. And I wasn't sure, but I, th I thought, well, um, I, I get excited about the potential of kids coming out of school because it's never been a better time, especially if you're an artist or a writer or a, a content creator. Never been a better time. Everything that we do or see online or wear or drive or eat has been designed by an artist. And um, just to encourage people to appreciate that and also appreciate that there's, there's huge failures in life and obstacles. Uh, but that's a good thing because the sooner you fail, the sooner you get to the good stuff. And to realize that's something that's not only unique to me and you, it's unique to Walt Disney. It's unique to all your heroes they were the biggest failures on earth, but they were so that they could succeed. So saying some things like that are things that I wish I could hear when I was 18 years old or 22 years old or whatever. And um, I, I think the more people that say those things um, and the, they're, they're not Pollyanna, they're not just being blindly optimistic, but I see them as truths um, to be able to say those things out in public um, is really important. Well, and it's not just for it's not just for those that are younger and and getting on, you know, with with their schooling or whatever their life, uh, their work. It, those the words that you spoke resonate resonate with me today, and I'm sure resonate with others. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. As we're beginning to wrap up, we're going to go back to where we began, with being such a fan of Beauty and the Beast and watching you know, the behind the scenes extras and the DVDs and, and the clips that were at the then Disney MGM studios in animation, Glenn Keane's drawing is just amazing. I've got to ask you about working with Glenn Keane. Do you have any memories or good stories? He seems like a quiet person and yet so. Well, he's inspiring. Amazing. He's thoughtful. He's not quiet. Oh, uh, he's, he's not. Okay, good. He he looks at animation and filmmaking uh, like a fine artist, like Van Gogh might look at painting. He doesn't see it as a um, a little niche or a comic book club or anything like that. He when he was animating the beast transforming into a human, 
he would go to the art museum in, in Pasadena here and, and, and draw Rodin sculptures and, and get these amazing human shapes and forms. He's a, a masterful draftsman, uh, but he puts so much emotion into his work that the emotion just fires like lightning out of the end of his pencil. And he's very um, articulate about that. And, uh, you know, so much as a producer, you so much of what you want to do is stay out of his way. I think the, the only thing I ever did for him was just say, get out of here, go to the art museum. And I, I bought him a taxidermy bison head one day just so he could see the, the kind of girth and, and giant feeling of a bison for the beast. Uh, something that was probably politically incorrect you wouldn't do today. And it, but it was fun to put on my expense report. Uh, <laughs> and it's in your closet, head. right? You know, it's one of those <laughs> yes. you have, so. Yeah, it's back here somewhere. Um, and, uh, and so he's a very passionate person. Um, most animators are. Some are. He's very articulate about uh, explaining why he's passionate. He, his, in, in two words, he uses the term make-believe that as a kid we were really welcoming the idea of make-believe we could believe something for all day long all year long if we wanted to and again we lose a little bit of that as a child but in in film and in entertainment and in content creation like you guys do uh, make-believe is so important to suspend our disbelief and really say you know for the next 90 minutes we're going to tell a story or we're going to take you to a place you can you can never go on your own and for 90 minutes you're going to forget your problems and your your gas bill and your tuition and whatever you're doing and you're going to be transported to this other place that's glenn Keane, and he does it brilliantly wow that's great well, thank you thank you for that story well another question i mean to since you are since music has been such an important part of your life and i can imagine that as um, a producer in, in beauty and the beast that were you there during the recording sessions with angela lansbury and jerry orbach yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, wow. Um, I, I know. I'm, it's just, it was, you know, I think fanning out here. So, no, no, me too. The one thing that was important, I think, to Howard and Alan was to record those songs like a uh, Broadway cast album. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so often uh, in modern music, uh, you would record the orchestra first, and then two days later, you'd record uh, The Beast, and Beauty would be a month later or whatever. Um, all of those characters were recorded at the same time with the orchestra sitting there. And so you could hear it live. And there was an energy and still is where you to do that today. There's an energy about human beings when they get together in the same room that you can't describe. Um, so it's very much what shows up in Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and, and Little Mermaid. Um, and, and so, yeah, those, and, and you have to remember that Angela Lansbury was the star of stage. I mean, she was a Broadway actress sure. first <laughs> and, um, and at 96 years old, she's, you know, lives down the street. She's still doing great. Mm. Um, so she was a singer, but again, one of those singers who could act first and foremost, and then sing after that mm -hmm. as Mame or as, you know, in Sweeney Todd or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's a person that I worked with, um, Stephen Sondheim and the best composers of her day working with us. Mm -hmm. uh, extremely professional, uh, extremely prepared. I recorded her just a year or two ago for a, a little show I did for Epcot for the French Pavilion. Mm -hmm. It's a Beauty and the Beast sing-along. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's get Angela to do it. And she was available. She comes in. She was maybe 93 or 94 at the time. Hi, how you doing? I was just shopping. 
Um, I, you know, it's good to see you guys. She pulls out her <laughs> script full of notes, sets it up. We record for an hour. She goes, okay, well, I'm going to go off and see the Downton Abbey movie now. We'll see you guys later. She's oh, wow. full of life and full of um, being herself. So to be in the room with someone like that, uh, David Ogden Steyer's Jerry Orbach, professionals, they know their craft, they're good at it, um, and brought so much to that movie. You know, you, you create a character, you can draw a character, you can understand what that character has to do in the plot. But when a voice shows up, they really breathe life into that character and create something completely new. Robbie Benson did, uh, Paige O'Hara did on that movie. So um, we're just the beneficiaries of that. And then the animators can take that to a whole nother level and, and make that voice come alive yet again. So yeah, I was in the room and it was glorious. <laughs> well, if you see her down the street, tell her we all say hello. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then uh, Vanessa, I think you have your last yes. questions. We can't let you go without talking about filming Richard Sherman in your documentary, Richard M. Sherman oh, songs thank you. for a lifetime. Oh, so great. Watching him sing and play it's like being transported back in time to the days of Walt Disney and, and the early days of Disney filmmaking. So when you're listening to Richard Sherman, do you feel that nostalgia? Yeah. I mean, he's the reason I did that. And I don't, I think I'm crazy, but I have a, I have a wife that is understanding and an artist and gets it. And I kept seeing Richard perform on cruise ships or at Disney fan events, D23 and nobody was filming it. And I just thought, all these performances are evaporating. That's the only word I could think of. And I called him up and I said, I didn't know him that well. I, I really didn't. I said, I, you don't know me, but this is what I, you know, this is who I am. And we had lunch together with his agent, Richard Kraft, who is amazing. Um, and I said, I'd like to get you in a room with a piano and have you play your songbook. Oh yeah, sure. And it was that easy. And, and so we spent six months or so preparing. I would go over to his house in Beverly Hills with his beautiful wife and sit at the piano and, and he'd say, well, what about this? Well, what about if we played that? Well, here's a song that's not Disney, but what about if we played that? And so we worked out this kind of sketch of, of the program. And, uh, and then we went to, you know, a, a great old kind of Frank Sinatra recording studio on Sunset Boulevard and a camera crew and a beautiful piano. And that's what we did all day. We let him sing and play piano. And it was just me possibly selfishly just saying somebody's got to put this man's work on film in a very bald faced way. That's this shows his talent and he is incredible. Um, and so we got it and, and it's, I think it's, it's available out there. I think it's on Netflix or Apple or something like that. And it is um, a treasure. So sometimes I do these, these uh, inexplicable things like that because I feel like they have to be done mm -hmm. and I'm tired of waiting for somebody to do it. Um, <laughs> thank you. Yes. That, yeah. I think Amazon that, prime. That's where I'm watching it. Amazon prime. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, so. so he's a dear sweet man uh, also in his mid nineties uh, and, and so gifted. I mean, not just in the sixties either. I mean, he kept writing for years and years and years up until, uh, you know, songs for Disneyland for a kiss. Good night that he wrote at the end of the day at Disneyland oh, when you go home. So, uh, you know, yes, I'm a fan. There's a there's a book that uh, it sounds like we're really trying to name drop here. We really aren't, but we talked to Floyd Norman several times, and, and Floyd is amazing. Amazing. And he wrote a uh, him and uh, Richard did a book about the Kiss Goodnight, and it's just absolutely incredible. So listeners, please go and find that. I I love that book because it's Floyd Norman um, drawings and illustrations along with Richard Sherman and that original song, and it's just so 
absolutely gorgeous. It even shows Marceline and oh goodness. Um, but I, anyway, I'm now I'm geeking out. So uh, I'm going to go to our rapid fire questions. And so you could, uh, we call these rapid fire. We're not going to stop you from talking. So it's kind of the lightning you, round. Is yeah, this saying. is the lightning round. We're calling but it you, lightning uh, lane because that's kind of the love that. Thing, so I'm ready for <laughs> right. It. So here we go. So favorite Disney film. Um, Jungle Book, but Peter Pan's a close second. Okay. Favorite Disney park? Uh, Disneyland. Although Disney, Tokyo Disney Seas, those of you who are lucky enough to go to Tokyo Disney Seas, totally different, totally unexpected, and gloriously beautiful. That's great. How about favorite Disney attraction? Pirates of the Caribbean. That is a common one uh, amongst a lot of creative people we've talked to. It's got uh, it all. It does. It does. Favorite Disney restaurant? That's very challenging because I overeat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed um, to. You're at Disney. You can have a couple. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Uh, oh, um, the, the um, top of the world at the Contemporary Hotel especially if you eat at 8.30 or 9 at night because you can step outside and watch the fireworks. Perfect. So a little cocktail, a little sushi, walk outside, see the fireworks, very romantic. That's great. And a favorite Disney snack? Corn dogs. Okay. Oh, the Disneyland corn dog, no doubt. It's it's a, a cherished item. Oh, sure. Little Red Wagon. Yeah. We have this. Uh, we have this question in there because these two have a debate going on whether the turkey leg should exist in a Disney park or not. Brett is anti turkey leg, and Vanessa's very pro. Do you have a a stance on the turkey leg? I am not a turkey leg fan, although I don't uh, abuse people who like it. Okay, um, I do. <laughs> Sorry, the turkey leg to me screams Renaissance Fair. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. and that's where it needs to be. And I don't say that as a disparaging remark, by the way. No, um, but. Um, I'm going to have to come down on the not crazy about turkey legs. Okay. And then our last, that's okay. Our last uh, rapid fire is, uh, do you have a favorite amongst the Disney live action remakes that have been done? Uh, Cinderella. Mm, That's mine. It's fantastic. It's just so, and Beauty and the Beast, I think uh, Bill Condon did a great job on Beauty and the Beast. They're tough things to make. Studio invests heavily in them, but the Cinderella, um, Kenneth Branagh, right out of the gates. What a beautiful remake that was. All right. And we have two final questions for you, Brett. What is the second to last question? How do you describe Disney magic? Hmm. The ability to uh, transport you to another place uh, in your life. Uh, A place of... um, optimism and joy and hope um that's a pretty abstract idea but i think we're always looking for that place we can go to because life is chaotic life is tough life is really difficult especially the last couple years and if disney magic whether it's an attraction or a movie or whatever can help you step away from that for a moment and forget about all that and be transported to a world where there is hope or a world where uh, troubles and, 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 and difficulties in life are overcome. Um, that's Disney magic. And that's good storytelling. I mean, uh, stories are all about someone who is living a normal day in their life. Something terrific happens to them and they dig themselves out of that pit and are victorious at the end. Mm-hmm. Every Disney movie is like that. 
and we will go see that story again and again and again because of that, because we need to hear that affirmation that everything's going to be okay. Because life is full of uncertainty. We need some certainty in our life. And that's what Disney magic can give us. That is excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been a pleasure. And we have one final question we like to really ask creative people, and that's you do hundreds of these types of interviews. And so we wanted to know if there is a story or a project that you're not often asked about that you wanted to share or get the, the word out about or just speak about because you're not often asked about it. Oh, it's funny. I just finished one that uh, you guys would enjoy and maybe have seen. I took Floyd Norman, who you were just talking about, to Walt Disney's house up in the hills of Los Feliz. And Ryan March, who runs the Disney Vacation Club, said, hey, Don, can you do a couple things during COVID to just kind of keep in touch with our Disney Vacation Club friends? And so I'm making these shorts now, which I love. So I take Floyd and I take him up to Walt Disney's house and we spend the day up there walking around, telling stories about Walt Disney, walking into his living room, walking into his screening room, seeing his backyard. And that's on Facebook. You can just log in and see it. So the idea of getting to spend a day with Floyd Norman was great. I did another piece with Bill Farmer, who does Goofy's voice at Walt Disney's uh, barn, his railroad barn in Traveltown. So those are little things. And I'm doing one now, which I haven't talked about at all, but it's... um, going to be just as good of taking obscure people to obscure places in Walt Disney history for 15 minutes and having a ball. So uh, check it out. Those have been really fun to do. And I don't really talk about those at all. So that's so great. And again, thank you. And thank you for all of the amazing art and creativity you've put out in the world, because we are the beneficiaries of that. And uh, thank you for everything you've done in your career and what you're going to be doing moving forward. It's just all so great. No, thanks, guys. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for the great questions and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's wow. it's an honor. It's really fun talking to you guys. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for being prepared and uh, keep going. It's, yeah, you know, it's so fun. Like when you see a good um, group like y'all uh, putting good vibes out there in the real world, it's the same as making a movie or the same as a great attraction. You're just, oh. um, you know, encouraging people and mm-hmm. man, the world needs it. So keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like, oh my gosh, I get to talk to Don Hahn today. Are you kidding me? Like, yes. so, you know, my wife doesn't feel that way all the time. So daunting. <laughs> Mrs. Hahn would love to hear that. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But thank you so much again, thank and uh, have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks. Same to you guys. Appreciate you. it. Happy holidays to you. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. Just incredible. What, what an amazing conversation that was. How are we so lucky? Wow. I, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't, don't know, know how we are, but thank, we're very thankful. We're extremely I, I, thankful. Oh, go ahead, Vanessa. It's just, it's again, you know, you know Don said it in an interview that, um, or did he say it? Maybe he said it after that there are just the, the people who work at Disney, the creative people that are walking around, they are kind, kind humans. They are good people. They're creative. They're fun. They're interesting. And I don't think we've ever walked away from an interview with a Disney creative person, not feeling a little bit of magic. They're just Mm -hmm. magical people and feeling so good. And he is certainly one of them. He's delightful. I just, I absolutely adore 
adore him and I adored that interview. Well, and one of the things I love about what he's doing now, he talked about it in his Richard Sherman answer. He wants to document these things for uh, historical purposes. And so when you see adventures through the Disney archives, I think he really lives that. He loves the Disney company. He loves these creative endeavors, and he wants to make sure that they're preserved for future generations. So that way you can go back. I can go back as someone that uh, was really like a, a life-changing event, me going to see Beauty and the Beast. And now, 30 years later, I learned so much more about Howard Ashman, who as a child, I didn't understand how much of an impact he had on that film. And then also ultimately on what I love in life, things like Disney and things like film and animation and everything that I enjoy he had such a big part of that. And so being able to document those things for us and for future generations is so important. Yes. Mm -hmm. And when he said that Richard Sherman was out playing on cruise ships, I died. It's like, no, no, baby, you do not go on a cruise ship and perform. You are Carnegie Hall all the way. You do I think not that need I, to stoop to that level. Not that my understanding. No, no, I think, no, no. I think, I think he does Disney like cruises. podcasts. He does like podcast yes. cruises. Like he gets invited by uh other podcasts. I thought that he was saying are... he was playing on cruises, and and that's why <laughs> no, there are lovely, <laughs> entertaining people on cruises. But Richard Sherman is a legend. That's you right. Put him he on is. a fancy stage. He is absolutely no. That's uh, that's wonderful, Brett. What are your thoughts on this conversation that we were able to have? What can I say? I mean, the stories of of hearing about Angela Lansbury singing Beauty and the Beast and all everything that she brought to that experience and so much else. I mean, and life affirming little tidbits that he gave us, you know, those are going to stay with me in our new year and always. Yeah. And wasn't it so cool to hear him talk about Angela being a Broadway performer and that's where our stage performers really come alive. It reminded me of our interview with Saul when he was telling us about Eartha Kitt really needing that oh, audience. Sure, yeah. And it's so cool that we see this through line through mm -hmm. these entertainers and through these stories about these entertainers. It's just really fascinating. Mm -hmm. it, oh, it really the is. It, the insights about um, how musicals come together, how uh, Howard Ashman would use these references from musical theater. And I'm like going, oh, I didn't see that before. And now I do. And oh, I see that now before. And, you know, when they recorded everything together, like it was a Broadway cast recording, I'm like going, well, duh, that I see that now, too. And it all makes sense. So, so many really interesting tidbits and this Disney geek is just enjoying it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's just so kind and was so, uh, you know, just so open with his answers. And uh, we even talked about things like Imagineering and that kind of struggle that's going on, maybe partially struggle that's going on. We don't know all the insides nope, of that, but certainly know. from the fan perspective, it's like, oh, you know, but just open and honest and kind and could tell stories for hours. And I would oh, be there yeah. listening and has done so many amazing documentaries on topics that we are interested in. So certainly go and check out Don Hahn's work uh, as you are moving out your new year here in 2022. Definitely someone to check out because of the creative energy and that human spirit that he talks about and is able to put into the world is just absolutely incredible. Final thoughts on Mr. Don Hahn, Vanessa. Can I say one thing? This of course. 
Brett, again, casually brings up that it was his birthday. And are we going to be talking about Brett's birthday in every single month of the year? I mean, this is the new year and we're still talking about Brett's birthday. I think we only got to talk about my birthday for like a minute, but here we are still talking about Brett. Hmm. Let's see. What's that film from a couple of years ago that had that really wonderful song? Was it Let It Go? <laughs> Brett, uh, between between Brett's uh, getting a happy birthday shout out and our uh, name dropping, you know, I I actually yeah. felt the the floor was really hurt by all the names that we dropped uh, during that interview. <laughs> but no, worst. truly, <laughs> really. But well, it's just you know, I mean, they're they're real experiences, and it's kind they of are. you know, you know. Yeah. Well, we and it's that personal person connection. Just, you know what yeah, I mean? It like it's that personal connection, connection of like mm -hmm. it is so cool that Howard Ashman is someone that. Uh, none of us have had the uh, would ever have the opportunity to be in the room with. And then he passed so young and tragically that now to hear the stories of Don Hahn and Jody Benson and Alan Menken, it makes you really feel like you got to understand who he was. And that's exactly what these creative people are trying to do to try to live that legacy and then also preserve the legacy of others. And so that's exactly yeah. what Don Hahn's all about. And that's why it was so great to get to chat with him. Brett, do you have any final thoughts as we start to wrap this thing up? I, it's, you know, I, there are no words. I often say that, but it was just such uh, a tremendous joy and, and and honestly i didn't i didn't bring it up then but at at d23 expo 2017 he he was at a book signing and i was like standing at a far and i realized that i was staring at don Hahn, and i'm like going should i apologize today so if you're hearing after the effect i apologize that i was you know the guy over there that was just like going there's don Hahn. <laughs> So I'm, I apologize for that. I'm like going, I didn't mention during the interview because then that would have been weird and now it's part of the interview and so now it is weird. And I just... <laughs> Totally. All right. We have a lot well, to be sorry for on this episode, but so much to be grateful for as so well. Just, this has been mm -hmm. an absolute treat. So I apologize this and I won't stare next time. Absolutely has been. And thank you again to Don for your creativity and then also for your time with us today. It was just a treat. If this is your first Beyond the Mouse, you're checking us out for the first time in 2022 you can definitely go back and listen to our previous interviews i might recommend a couple uh, we certainly mentioned them during our chat i would recommend the floyd norman talks that we had uh, also jody benson and alan Mankin, because those tie really truly directly into this conversation and of course we did also get a chance to chat with brenda chapman as well um, who was very vital uh, played a vital role in beauty and the beast and also in lion king as well so that's another good interview to go back to you can also just listen to the three of us chat disney we just had our favorite episode and one of my favorite episodes of the year in our year in review and kind of looking forward to where we're going in 2022. So go back and check out those episodes as well. You can find us on any podcast platform that you like just by searching Beyond the Mouse. You can also follow us on social media. So we're on Beyond the Mouse Pod on Instagram also Beyond Mouse on Twitter and Beyond the Mouse Podcast on Facebook. We also have a Facebook group, Beyond the Mouse Podcast Pals. And that is where I would direct you to go to interact with the show and let us know where you're listening from and let us know uh, what you want to hear about in future episodes as well. We also like to post some late-breaking Disney news in there as well. This is a great start to 2022. So here's to the rest of the year. Uh, to the two of you, you are both lovely people. I can't wait to see where this year takes us. And uh, we're probably going to be chatting about this interview on December 31st, 2022. So I'm sure 
Yes. Right? Yes, <laughs> right. Of course, yes. of course. <laughs> Absolutely. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Maybe in the front row of a new Don Han picture in the future. Right? I don't know about y'all, but I'm gonna figure out where Angela Lansbury lives. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can we hey can we see hey Don, can you see that golden globe again? Where is that at? What else is in that closet? Like, <laughs> I, see the buffalo. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs>